Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel. I'm my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, man? I mean, good. Uh, good, good. We're uh, we're getting close now. Next week, Super Bowl. Yeah, that's the big decision maker of which side wins determines where the markets go. Right, <laughs> the markets go. We're going back to that, are we? We have enough trouble with indexing. Never mind the Super Bowl index. The Super oh my Bowl gosh. index. And I'll report to you on how it went, and yeah. then where's the market going to go based on? Well, if you're going to be there. That's, a, that's going to be an exciting trip with I, you I and your daughter. Yeah. yeah, this is a daddy daughter trip. It's yeah. not about the game for my daughter. It's about the halftime show. Yeah, that's right. So she's all about that. So I'm looking forward to uh, to uh, taking her there. That'll be fun. And, and I miss those days that we could just get up and leave and go go on a nice trip. So I'm I'm glad that we're taking a risk, but we're it's a calculated risk. And we're well, yeah, out. I think it I, I think it's um, it makes sense. We're moving clear. I think more clearly towards whatever endemic means in this, right? But living, <laughs> we you and I debate this a lot. Yeah. Living with it, you're seeing lots of talks about restrictions. Um, uh, you know, coming off and, you know, looking at the, uh, just the jobs numbers and, and then let's talk a little bit about an important topic we're going to cover today, but the jobs numbers this week showed a very different approach, I think, from our, our country versus the United States, where we lost a bunch of jobs and likely to do with some shutdowns, U.S. handling it a little bit differently. They gained some jobs. Really interesting what's happening. They gained some jobs, Dave? Well, just some? 467,000. Did they, didn't they also adjust November's numbers as well? Yeah. And employment. Yeah. And in the morning on that Friday release, didn't the 10-year the U.S. government bond just take off an in interest rate? It did. It did. So it's not that you're, you're sounding like it was just a you know oh, a minor adjustment, like you're fixing well, your hair in the mirror or something. Yeah, no, listen, I was talking about the differences <laughs> in our country's approach, but, <laughs> but the impact. The impact yeah. is so large, yep. right? And there's a wage increase. Yep. And we, we had some great uh, uh, sums of volatility this week in the markets. I'll focus on the tech area. I think Thursday was the meta worst I've seen. Get it? <laughs> hey, I Get got it? it. That was a cheesy, cheesy that attempt at humor. No, that was good. Meta yeah. worse. Meta worse, yeah. <laughs> I was calling this week the Jerry Maguire week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Show me the money. That's what the market was saying. Say it again. <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> and that's, that's accurate because, first of all, you look at the economics, you saw people's uh, average wages yeah. going up. You saw a lack of showing the money by Meta, formerly known as Facebook. They got hammered in the market. You saw Snap, the other social media platform. <clears throat> Surprise, they made a profit first time. A profit. Well, and I want to come back to that one in a minute. And then Amazon crushed their numbers. Surprise, they showed you the money. Yep. So there's money everywhere happening here, except for some places like the Meta worse. Right. Meta <laughs> worse. Right, and so, so you're you've got you've got some big gyrations in the market, and I like this because finally, the one the companies that are actually making money and growing their bottom line are being rewarded. Finally, yeah. yeah. And and speaking of that, there is a segment of um, of the Canadian economy that hasn't maybe had the respect and needs to show the money, but is repositioning to do that right now and it will be one of uh, incredibly Im uh, important to this particular province and that's oil and gas that's right and we're going to spend some time today with eric nuttle um over a couple of different segments and di start digging in deep as to what is going on in the oil and gas and energy markets 
And how does that affect us here locally and the companies that are here in Calgary? Now, I've been working and tracking Eric for years with his previous firm and now with Nine Point Partners. Um, Eric, for full disclosure, is part of our portfolio uh, when we are investing through his fund. Uh, it's in our portfolio. So there is, so I, I want to be transparent on that. And the reason why is because people are going to understand why we've worked with, I work with him. Why is he part of our portfolio? Why is his his investments a selection strategy that we actually uh, agree with at this point in time? And I think there's an opportunity for investors. So I, they need to hear the story. But there's also an outlook on the economy because yep. people think higher oil prices equals more jobs in Alberta. Right. And I've been saying this for, I don't know, a couple of years now as we started to see the recovery of the price of oil. Don't put the two together. Yep. Now, that's also different than the royalties that the province receives with higher price of oil. Yep. Okay, so there is three different levers in this as an Albertan and has different impacts as an Albertan. But as an investor, huge opportunity. So you definitely yep. want to tune in for, for this show because we're going to show you the money when we talk about the energy market and where specifically are the opportunities. Yeah, and we should say, listen, uh, anybody in this province has been through the booms and busts of oil uh, in the energy market. So it's important that you always get professional advice, right? Absolutely. When you decide if it's a suitable investment in your portfolio. Absolutely. Okay, so having said that, let's talk about, um, let's talk about this show me the money idea, because okay. you, you highlighted some of it and, and it was amazing. and. Um, Snap on 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 Friday to me was a very interesting one because it was the very first time in history it showed the money. Do, do you know what Snap is? Well, I do. Have you, do you, have you used it? I allowed my daughter to use it, so she oh, shows. So you've me. given her the permission to use yeah. it. Have you? No. I don't have you taken a Snap? No. It's addictive. Oh yeah. It's addictive. I can see how after all these years, it's now showing a profit because anybody under the age of eighteen will not touch Facebook or better known as Meta. Right. They're all over Snap. And if you look at the the easiest spending power of a consumer, it's the 18 to 34 demographic, but more importantly, it's those are the parents of kids who are using Snap who are saying, mom, dad, buy me this. Right. So think about that from a business perspective, and now let's overlay the understanding of the company Snap. Yeah, well, and, and well, I'm just going to talk about the show me the money piece because it was it was a very interesting week of trading given what you said the, you know, Meta platforms parent of Facebook um, comes out and they and they um, have a very different uh, profile earnings profile than what we've seen from the likes of Apple of Microsoft uh, and ultimately of Amazon the next day. But but what's happening is there's a bunch there's headwinds and tailwinds and and Meta was facing a bunch of the headwinds and they cited competition from the likes of TikTok. They talked about the Apple. Uh, iOS, iOS change yep. and the privacy and $10 billion of potential revenue impact there. Um, but it's not affecting everybody the same way. And what was interesting though, Meta comes out with their, their, their results. Everything sells off. Anything social media related for sure, I would argue that it spilled into the broader markets and you got that pretty negative, that ne- negative day. Yeah. Well, close a business, immediately Amazon produces its results. Super strong growth, 40% in their, uh, their cloud-based and their, their AWS business. Interesting, the retail business kind of flattened down 1%, right? Big gains in, in some of the investments they made, but a very different profile, and we get this reversal. And then when you look at the best example, that why I was saying Snap, because if it is about show me the money, and they show the money for the very first time, the very first quarter they showed profitability, 22 cents, crushing expectations of 10, 
they're up like 50%, right? It was just, it was, it was a crazy contrast over those two days of the show me the monies and those that don't show me the money. That's right. And I think this is where investors have to understand when they look at the broader indexes, understand what's inside that index. What are the constituents of the index? So when they see that the NASDAQ is falling 3%, well, who are the largest constituents in that index? Right. That's why it's falling the way it does. The bottom three or five companies, if they fell by 50%, it wouldn't even move the index. Right. Same with the S&P 500, same with the TSX. Who are the big players when this volatility happens? And I think we anchor ourselves as investors to some generic index mm. that has no bearing or part of our portfolio to be measured against. Yep. Right? That's that's crazy. We don't do that anywhere else in the world. Right. Except for our portfolio. The TSX is even or up. How come my money isn't? Or the markets are down so much, it's a terrible world to invest. Right. Really? Right. Look at the constituent. Let's start looking at who are you buying? Yep. What are you buying? Not what index are you referring to? Right. And that will be the big difference in the in the investor's peace of mind, yep. viewpoint of how you're investing. I, people who buy passively, we've talked about this, 2022 is going to be the year of Pepto-Bismol. Because yeah. you're going to have so much gyrations intraday that you will need a ball of Pepto-Bismol to deal with all the ups and downs of the volatility just intraday because people are not focused on the constituents as much as they're focused on the index. Yeah, and listen, there, there is an, there's an aspect of passive versus uh, um, active investing in any portfolio at different times when you're underweight and overweight. I agree with that. Faisal, we get lots of questions, obviously, about the energy market, um, particularly in Calgary. It's, of course, a centerpiece of this community. But certainly, it's been, a, you know, oil's been on a strong run. Canadian energy companies have been doing very well. And uh, let's explore some of the reasons why and what we can expect to see in the future. Yeah, let's take it not only in regards to the companies itself, but oil going from a negative number on its way to $100, according to some analysts, what's the impact? Where is it coming yep. from? What's the risk? And people who've lived in Alberta have seen a boom and a bust, Dave. And when they see these opportunities of this kind of a growth, there's always that little bit of fear of, will this thing turn back and will I lose on my investment? Will the price of oil plummet? So on and so forth. Yep. So what are the risks out there as well? But there's nobody else better. And we can talk about this this topic from mm -hmm. investing and the price of oil when it comes to the energy market. And we've got Eric Nettle, Partner Senior Portfolio Manager at Nine Point Partners. Eric, welcome to the show. Happy to be with you. Hey, congratulations, first of all, Eric, on a couple of, uh, you know, a great year last year, a terrific start to this year. Uh, you've done extremely well in the picks. And of course, you've got some tailwinds of what's going on in the energy markets. And maybe that's where we can start uh, the conversation. If you could just give us a little bit of context of uh, of what you see in the markets today. And I know you're thinking about, uh, you know, a generational, a potential generational opportunity in oil and gas here. But first of all, the context, what do you, what do you see in the energy markets right now? You bet. Well, I think we're in a multi-year bull market for oil. And you need to take a step back to evaluate, okay, how do we get into this situation in the first place? We know for quite a while now, we've had to deal with COVID and the impact on demand, the demand shock, et cetera. And the lingering impact that had on oil inventories. I was taught early in my, my energy career to be a student of inventories because it has the greatest inverse correlation to the price of anything that you could look at. And another factor is in the energy markets, it's very difficult to get real-time 
data. Like there's no ticker to finding a real-time oil demand. And so when you follow inventories, it's really the nexus between supply and, and demand. And so I was a, a believer that we would see a healing of the surplus in global inventories that was caused by the demand shock from COVID. And yet, as much as people wanted to focus on demand, I was convinced that the real story going forward is on supply. And the structural constraints on supply growth, whether it's on U.S. shale, whether it's on the global super majors, whether it's on OPEC, it's, there's a variety of reasons, but they all result in the same impact. And that is, I see an environment going forward where production growth is very challenged, and yet demand, I think, will grow for at least the next 10 years. And so the setup is continued drawdown in global inventories, upwards pressure on price. You know, we all like to use round numbers. I, I, I was guilty um, uh, through last year in this year talking about $100 oil and such, but there's, there's nothing magical. There's no difference between 100 and 101. I just think people need to embrace the idea that we're, we are in a higher price environment. You know, as good as $92 feels today for a lot of sovereign nations, this just gets them to a fiscal break even as a major oil producing uh, country. And frankly, in a post US shale hyper world, this is where we used to be. You know, if you look at um, inventories, we're approaching the levels last seen between 2010 and 2015. Well, the average oil price averaged about $97 during that time period. So as weird as this feels, as unusual, as, as, as good as it feels, you know, we're all conditioned to expect that, you know, a bad thing is, is about to follow a good thing because we've all been run over so many times. It feels very different this time. And I think the road forward is very different than the one we've been stuck on for the past 10 years. So there's talking about this generational opportunity. We've we've seen this been uh, when you mentioned those words. That's those words have been taken out and used pretty much in every media outlet out there when it comes to energy. And so when you talk about this generational opportunity, let's break down maybe two or three things that gives you the evidence for our viewers and listeners to say, okay, this is an opportunity because there are a lot of skeptics in this province of Alberta right now with everything that we've gone through. To see it go this high, yeah, yeah, we've heard this before, a great opportunity, and then all of a sudden a bust comes out, and they're like, this is not what we expected. And their portfolios, their jobs, their the housing market in Alberta, everything is kind of what reliant upon this to some degree. Let's uh, let's get your, your two or three points of why you think this is a generational opportunity. Sure. So I think people need to dare to dream and see a, a world in which we've basically neutralized the biggest disruptive factor over the past 10 years, and that is the rise of U.S. shale. For too long, any time there was a price a rally, you'd have an increase in supply from U.S. shale producers. And what I think people fail to fully appreciate is the structural change in the very business ethos of these businesses. They've gone from growth-seeking to return-seeking, from growing 20 30%, 40%, irrespective of the economic a devastation that, that occurred to we need to mute to maybe have very, very modest growth to allow us to maximize free cash flow such that we can return that free cash flow back to investors. And it took a long time. It wasn't an overnight change, but there's been a structural change. There's been the codification of companies having to satisfy a variable quarterly dividend where there's effectively a cash sweep. And the only way that that disruptive force, U.S. shale hypergrowth, could return would be your, your shale CEO going back to investors saying, we know right now at the current oil price, you're, you're enjoying your 8 to 10% cash yield, but we want to take that money away from you 
so that we can go use it to drill and grow our production aggressively because we know just how well that ended the last time. And so what would happen? The CEO is make, who is making about $15 million a year would get fired, the report probably tossed. It's too tasty of uh, for yield investors now to give that up anytime soon. So that's the context. Going forward, we're relying on long cycle, not short cycle, four to six years to bring on big mega projects, not four to six months. And so when I look at valuations today, if I use the analogy of, of widgets, because when I talk about oil, there's there's emotion to that. So as an investor, just say that the, the at the current you know outlook for widget manufacturers, the average widget guy has a warehouse with 15 years of widgets just sitting there. So the very high certainty, there's no risk, it, it's there. And yet because of the average selling price right now of widgets, it's, it's up. Some guys think it's going to go higher. It's a very profitable business. The net margin that generates excess free cash flow is so huge. And yet the valuation of widget manufacturers, because people don't understand the widget business very well, is so low that out of free cash flow, the average widget manufacturer could privatize, could buy back all of the outstanding shares in four years. And that's even with the average widget price fell by about $12 from here, if it went from $92 to $80 per, per widget. And so my belief is I am getting free optionality because the average widget guy is probably discounting a widget price of 60 bucks, and we're sitting at 92 today. You're getting free optionality, not just on where oil is today because of that massive chasm, but in the you know more bullish optionality with the average oil company now sitting on 15 years of inventories, but able to privatize with four years at $80 WTI. And investors literally getting an 11 years of relatively known free cash flow stream for free. And so at 80 bucks, the sector's trading at a free cash yield of 26%, meaning for 10 years at $80 oil or 15 years, a company can pay a 26% dividend per year. And so that's, that's income with relatively low risk that the street's not paying for at all because of a theme called energy ignorance, which I'm sure we can touch on later on. Eric, I, that, that's an excellent point. I want to explore that a little bit more. I also want to explore the amount of risk and volatility that people are going to have to uh, inherently accept in the in the oil and gas market. The one side of the equation is the opportunity. Right Now, with every piece of opportunity in the markets, regardless of industry, regardless of investment type, there's a risk associated to it. And so we need to understand what the risk is for that opportunity. And let's uh, let's kind of get right into yep. it. And let's have that conversation. So Eric, when we when we look at all the opportunity that you've outlaid in the last uh, last piece, let's talk about the the risks that are out there and what should what should investors expect as that kind of volatility or risk that as they as they see the opportunity come to their portfolios. Yeah, it's it's a very fair and reasonable question. And so when you think short term. What we, what we have is a U.S. president suffering from profoundly low uh, approval ratings, where inflation is the biggest concern. And the driver of that, one of them is gasoline prices. And so I, I think there's a rising risk of a deal struck between um, the United States and Iran, which could release realistically six to 700,000 barrels per day of incremental supply. You can see OPEC kind of starting to um, uh, make uh, accommodations already for that. And I think it's a very easily absorbable amount. But for energy, you know, there's the physical demand for oil, which is the largest commodity in the world. But then there's the financial demand for oil, financial market for oil, which is over 30 times bigger. And so 
the financial demand for oil can go down on a day on headline risk, even though the physical demand hasn't gone down. So you just, as an energy investor, it's, 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 it's annoying at times because oil will sell off and you're trying to explain it and it's very difficult. You can have like a fear inducing headline. And so, you know, maybe uh, an Iranian agreement in the next uh, few weeks sees oil sell off very temporarily. I think given how underowned this sector is and valuations with, you know, a stock trading discounting $58, you know, there's a large cap I was looking at this morning, Canadian oil sand large cap, discounting $58. So if we sell off from 92 to 85, let's say, is the stock is selling? Like there's so much margin of safety given how depressed valuations are today, which is crazy, right? Like my fund was up 186% last year. I'm up 28 or so this year. You'd, you'd be thinking the sector's overvalued, but it's only because stocks got so annihilated in the early part of 2020 that so much of the performance is just a healing process from the lows that these stocks saw. So I would say, you know, my canned answer for a long time was, well, a vaccine resistance strain that sets us all back into our homes yet again, the economy shuts down. Outside of that, I would view, you know, maybe an SP, another SPR release, even though that mattered for like a whole week. I think the markets is seeing through that. An Iranian deal, uh, I think, is increasingly likely given the, the pressures that the Biden administration is under. When you think about demand, there's really no short-term risks in my mind outside of, um, you know, a vaccine resistance strain because we've, we've, we're back to pre-COVID levels. And yet the jet fuel market for leisure travel remains very weak. And that should be improving in the coming months. You're like, well, here we are in February. We're at the weakest period seasonally of demand, weakest part of the year. And we're already at $92. And we haven't spoken about the biggest bullish catalyst for this sector in generations will be the exhaustion of OPEX per capacity, which seems very likely to me by the end of this year. So we haven't even gotten there. And we're already at 92 and so it, it's, it's reasonable, and I know we've all been traumatized from the sector, which has been horrifically challenging and volatile and soul-sucking for certain periods. But I, I, there's a, a lineup kind of tag, which is just dare to dream, because the, the disruptive influence of U.S. shale is largely over. I'm still expecting growth, but not to exceed global, global demand growth. And therefore, if you've removed that um, potential risk, Outside of that, outside of you know the COVID um, uh, aspect, it's difficult to put your finger on a reasonable risk to the bullish uh, thesis because it revolves around what got us into this situation, this oil supply crisis, which the world is in and will increasingly be in. It wasn't an overnight phenomenon. It's been a multi-year trend of insufficient investment, ESG pressures, the uh, the, the utilization of uh, high-graded inventories in U.S. shale companies, OPEC not being able to invest in productive capacity for six, seven years as they've had to um, uh, keep social spending going. So it's not—it's been a very, very long time in the making to get us here, um, and therefore I think the, the the extent of the bull market that we're in is going to be equally as long, at minimum, I think, five to six years. When you look at the opportunities in the energy market, where are you seeing the best opportunity? You talked about free cash flow. You've talked about the intrinsic value that's not even being realized by the market. Is it in the large companies, in the uh, the big big ones that we see in the United States, Canada, parts of Europe, or are we talking small, mid-size in Alberta? Like, where where's the opportunity 
because you're more active. Most people are talking about indexes and just the market as a whole generically, but there's a reason why you've outperformed. And part of that is your selection of, of, uh, of securities. Where's the opportunity from this point going forward? Yeah, so we can invest anywhere in the world. And what we find is we want to be invested in Canada because our stocks are the cheapest out of any geographical jurisdiction I can find. We have positive rate of change through building out a million barrels per day of new uh, pipeline capacity you know, with line three and the TMX at some point next year. So the very reason why energy investors have avoided us has now or will soon be nullified. So I want to be Canadian. I want to be oily. And I do want to be small because this market, many of my peers, my competitors, no longer exist. They converted into ESG funds. They left energy, went into technology because it's just was too painful and they couldn't take it anymore. And so it's been a kind of a game of last man standing. And it's really, it's myself and one other competitor who I, who I view. So the market is incredibly inefficient. And by that, I mean, there is no dispersion, major dispersion valuations between what I would call junk and what I would call quality. There's no one doing the work to evaluate management quality, inventory depth, balance sheet strength, ability and willingness to return capital in the form of dividends, buybacks, et cetera. Everything's being priced, generally speaking, in a very, very tight band. That's, that's idiotic, right? Like junk should not be trading the same as quality, but that's where we are because of inefficiencies. And so as a stock picker, a guy who can easily model companies, I've been doing this for long enough, I know the teams, I know, think I can identify catalysts to get a re-rating in valuations, et cetera. It's a target-rich environment to be able to continue, I think, to outperform the index, which is essentially the, the, the large caps. And you know, some of them, without getting specific, are, are uh, suffering from some chronic underperformance because of operational issues. And so that's where I want to be. I want to be Canada. I want to be oily. I want to be small. And I want to be in the companies that either are or will soon be returning capital in the form of meaningful, meaningful share buybacks and dividends, because that is the curative to the apathy that the generalist investor is still stuck in. They're, they're just stuck in this catatonic state of not being able to recognize how unbelievably mispriced these stocks are. And what triggers them out of that will be massive dividends. And the, the, I think the, the outlook for dividend and dividend increases over the next several years is, is phenomenal. When you look at the opportunities of growth in these companies, is it just going to be paying out distribution? Or will they be expanding? And that's coming from people who are watching and listening to you that are worried about the economics in Alberta, for example. Will they be hiring again? Will they be actually looking at more and more people? And then look at this from a provincial royalty perspective. Is there going to be more revenue coming into the, the province because of what else, what's going on with this opportunity? I think the growth outlook is challenged over the next couple of years. And the answer to that really depends on how quickly the re-rating occurs. Because I'm, I, I manage the Nine Point Energy Fund, the biggest energy fund in the country now, and we manage almost one, well, just over 1.4 billion today. And so, my conversation with my holdings, of which we're you know sizable owners of, is you cannot justify growth today given the valuation of your stock if you're trading at two and a half times, 2.3 times cash flow at $80 oil, so $12 lower, lower than where we are today, you cannot justify spending a single dollar above which that's needed to keep production flat. What you should be doing is maximizing free cash flow and then implementing very meaningful buybacks as a way to, again, get a re-rating back, closer back to historical levels. You know, I, I think multiples can, can double from here, um, potentially even more as we enter into a real bull market and it brings in the, the, the meaningful amounts of generalist money. And so no, I, I think the outlook in terms of employment 
production growth is muted for the next uh, little while only because energy stocks remain severely discounted and the owners of the businesses, the shareholders are saying you can't justify growth capital right now. There's the odd exception to that, but generally speaking for the sector, in global energy investors, not just Canadian, global, want one thing and one thing only. They want returns. They want to get paid. They want to get paid now for you know the, the heartache that we've all experienced for, for many, many years. Okay. Well, that sounds, um, yeah, that sounds like um, a generational opportunity. Uh, Eric, thank you very much. Um, your feedback is, I think, both welcome and, and important, particularly in our city and our province. And it's uh, it actually sounds optimistic, and it'll be fun for people to hear that message. Also, a good opportunity for investors. And thank you for all the great work you've done. You're part of our portfolio. Full transparency on that, yep. and uh, and you've been a meaningful contributor to it. So we appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we've been joined by Eric Nuttall, Partner, Senior Portfolio Manager, Nine Point uh, Partners, and talking about all things oil there. What can we learn from our parents about retirement? Very interesting, because, yeah. you know, when people have been either listening to the show, watching us, clients of ours, they understand that Dave and Faisal are two different type of people when it comes to money. Most money managers, most investment advisors, have the basic theory, buy low, sell high, stay invested, and all that stuff. Like those are the generic, uh, the, the, the white label of an advisor, the white label of a portfolio manager. But when you actually start talking about the investment and cash flow strategies of an individual, of an advisor, you kind of have to know why they are the way they are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Why do they do what they do? Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting how different we are, but we've come from similar stories. Well, and it's a good mix, and I think that's what people will conclude at the end of this, right? Um, you know, when we when we started out as rookies, I think way back, whatever it's been now, 20 years, you think about what do you do, who do you do it for, how do you do it, and why do you do it? Yeah. And the why is really important. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's what you were driving at, Faisal. And if I may, I, I'm going to start. You know, you call me the chicken on the team a lot, and... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and it's true, right? I'm way more sensitive to risk than uh, You're just than you sensitive are. Sensitive in general. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a delicate more flower. More sensitive than There's I am. There's no yes. question. <laughs> okay, so so why am I such a delicate flower? Well, it, you know, it has to do with what what I experienced. I watched my parents go through um, uh, retirement, and uh, my father, uh, as yours did, uh, really came from very little, very humble beginnings. Right. And my dad was pretty aggressive in terms of um, his education, his career, progressing. He lived his life, and that's how he moved from where he was to where he took our family. And um, for the vast majority of our life, that was a very, very great experience and story. But it did turn painful, and it turned painful in 2008. My dad never adjusted his investment style. He remained that personality his whole life. Um, and 2008 was a very damaging period of time financially for my parents because they had not adjusted uh, sort of the risk approach that they took. And so I saw my parents go through it, and I don't want to suggest that they were living on the streets or anything like that, but it wasn't what they envisioned for their retirement. Um, and I watched my parents go through that. was a painful experience for me. And it shaped, and you know this, we've talked about this loss, it has shaped the way I look at structure, strategy, discipline yep. around how in, uh, how investments uh, and wealth should be managed, right, in support of that experience that people want to have, what we call lifestyle. 
You had a similar, ex- well, you, you, everybody comes from a background. You've got a, you've got a story that also has shaped yep. the way you look at, yep. what the lens you look through. You know, if, if we were a, a TV show, we would be called Profit and Protect. Yeah. And I'll call you Protect. Good. Okay, you're, you're Inspector Protect. And I'm Constable Profit. <laughs> and the reason why is because in my story, seeing my father... Humble beginnings, uh, started up a business. Um, that was his anchor. Mm-hmm. He explored in other businesses where he lost a lot of money. If I could use a four-letter word, I would use a four-letter word right, right now. Right. Loss. Yep. Got it. That was the word. And the reaction to that loss was to be so conservative, almost ultra-conservative, during, anybody remember in Alberta, in the early 80s, it was drop off your keys to the bank because you're going to foreclose. In that type of a world, he never had to foreclose, but he had humongous losses in other businesses besides his anchor business. And that made his mindset change to protect, protect, preserve. Right. Okay? Which, when you learn about this, and then you go through your education, you go through life experience, you go, hang on, what could have been done differently? Was it how he invested in these other businesses? What was his due diligence? Yep. What was his approach? Where did he see opportunity? Why was he so protective of his money? Conservative, the chicken. Yep. Right? The grandpapa chicken. Yep. All the, if he didn't do those things and he did something else, it would have been a better solution. Right. So my view has always been look for profit. Right. Go for the profit. Try to make sure you you will have volatility. Yep. But that doesn't mean you hide. Yep. That means you go and look out for more. And so the two of us, when we look at our business and our practice and how we are as individuals and how we actually articulate our approaches with our clients, they come from two different viewpoints yep. because of how we reacted to a similar outcome from our parents. Yeah, and, and it's it's a good combination, right? I mean, people... And maybe we should film this sometime. People would love to be a fly on the wall um, on the debates that we have, right, around around growth. We definitely know we need to grow, but how do we do that in a measured way? What's the measured amount of risk, right? That's right. And it, it, it is a very balanced conversation given, uh, you know, given our two personalities. But I think it's really important for people to understand, and even their own bias, right? What did they learn from their parents um, that they're bringing to the Absolutely. table with respect to their investment decisions it plays a role. How you were raised with money. How are you dealing with money when you've lost it and made it? Yep. Those who make money over time, investing, saving, have a different view of sure money do. than those who I call the instant millionaires. Yep. Those instant millionaires, for whatever reason, all of a sudden made lots of money, have a different outlook when it comes to their money. Yep. Right. And so when you make money or lose money, when we have clients who call us up and are concerned about their portfolio, we know who are the the instant millionaires right. and the ones who've who've grown this money over the years by saving. Yep. Right. There's they're oh, different. Oh, for sure. For those sure. who are engaged in their retirement versus those who are not as engaged in their retirement and just looking at the balance of their portfolio to determine if they've got a successful retirement or not. Yeah. Or or those, and again, this is the one I'm most sensitive to that that are looking at. Uh, hindsight return only with no risk it's hindsight return has no risk and this is why i'm glad <laughs> that when when client or even a, a listener of our show 
comes to you and says, I want to make more money and I want to compare it to the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or whatever it is, you'll come back from your perspective of humble beginnings yep. to catastrophic change in 2008 right. to where you are today. And not just you, but your family and the experience they've all had. Yep. And, and that will give them a bit a sense of feeling grounded. I, I, I have that sense of comfort knowing that you're not gonna take unnecessary risks. You're not gonna gamble my money as an investor in your portfolio, Dave, because you're not like that. Correct. On the other side, people who are concerned, scared, nervous, I look for opportunity. Right. Right. And they can feel, find comfort knowing yep. that I will always look for ways to make you money. Right. And the, the profit and protect, those two superpowers right. when it comes to what you want out of your portfolio yep. and how we get there with our structure and discipline, it's all come back to not only the education we have, right. but why we chose that education right. and where we came from. So I and think that story is fantastic. Well, and, and I think it gives perspective, right? And I think it's something that, that people need to understand. The, you know, the, the other thing is um, the approach, when you talk about the structure and discipline, style drift, right? That won't make sense to, to the listeners maybe, but um, you want to have a consistency in what you do, right? Because it is only through the consistency over time that you can measure the results. And this is another thing, you know, you get return chasers as people or people that are ultra conservative and markets go down, they pull out and they create Pattern. permanent loss of capital, yeah. right? There has to be a consistency in what you do. So who are you? What do you do? How do you do it? Why do you do it? Who do you do it for? All of those questions have to remain consistent, right? In order for people to get a comfort level. And there's nothing more important than confidence and trust when you get into this period of retirement. Now let's talk about confidence. Let's talk about how you trust your, your financial future. How do you bulletproof your retirement? That's what we're gonna show you. Our solution to those problems on Tuesday, February 22nd, 7 p.m. live online. Now you need to register for this. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com that's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Well, we look forward to seeing you there. And on behalf of Faisal, myself, the entire team that helps put this together, we look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.